Stop talking about comic books or I'll kill you. I don't care if the Hulk could defeat the Man of Steel. I'm gonna rearrange your face if you continue to debate whether Logan's claws could pierce Steve Rogers' Hello and welcome to a special episode of FW Presents, the anthology show of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Siskoid, and if you're a Fire and Water Patreon supporter at a certain level, you can suggest a show. And this is, in fact, a suggestion from Steve Givens, who wanted us to discuss how comics changed our lives, and, and maybe yours too. So we've assembled a small panel on which sits Master Givens himself. Hi, Steve. Hello, how are you doing, Siskoid? I'm doing well. Along with us are two network all-stars from Cheerscast, Mr. Ryan Daly. Hey, happy to be here. And from the Human Flycast, we've got Max Romero. Hello, everybody. I also asked our Patreon subscribers if they had any stories about comics changing their lives, and I will read them throughout the show. But first, Steve, how did you come up with this suggestion? Well, first of all, let me uh, say to anyone who hasn't become a Patreon supporter of the, of the network, do it. The pure, unbridled power you are given to direct the course of the mighty behemoth, that is, the Fire and Water Network, is intoxicating. Um, <laughs> dollar, our, dollar our, bills, y'all. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay, I kid, I kid, of course. Um, you know, But the idea of allowing uh, listeners to make suggestions and for you guys to actually follow through on those suggestions when possible is a really exciting way to engage your audience. So, you know, first of all, kudos to whoever came up with that. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm thrilled to be here because of it, but all the joking aside, um, the inspiration for my suggestion actually came after I saw the video of, um, a little boy named Danny Sheehan who was, uh, fighting brain cancer. And this video was of him shouting for joy over, receiving an Aquaman action figure for Christmas. Uh, it was a video that went viral, and I think uh, Rob shared it on his Facebook page, which is how I first saw it. It got a lot of attention. Uh, at one point, I think, um, well, it did happen. Jason Momoa actually reached out to the little boy, Danny, and they had a video conversation together. Now, that video, uh, not to sound melodramatic about it, it stirred something in me that went beyond just sympathy for a boy fighting brain cancer, although I did feel that very strongly. His shout for joy, uh, the pure emotion of it, struck a familiar chord with me because I have vivid memories of feeling that same joy over something related to a superhero or a comic book. Uh, and it got me reflecting on the huge role comics have played in my life uh, for about as long as I can remember. I am I'm 46 years old, and I don't remember comic books not being in my life in some way, shape, or form. So I then decided to make that my suggestion for a fire and water episode. How have we been affected by having comics in our lives was essentially the question I was asking. It's a question that gets explored indirectly, I think, here on the network all the time. I mean, you all wouldn't be doing shows about various comics and such if those things didn't have some deep relevance to your lives. And we listeners wouldn't be tuning in if, it, if the same wasn't true for us. So I thought... There would be a value in tackling the topic head on. 
cut to a year later, uh, Siskoid reached out to me about participating in this episode. So here I am. So a good lesson about patience with these situations. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to them eventually. It's just, uh, you know, sometimes it's not on our radar because we do have a, a big workload. Sure. Yeah, we've prepared some talking points. I'll guide us through them. But let's first talk generally. What are the positives? We'll talk about negatives, but what are the positives to really anyone getting into comics, especially during our formative years, like we all did? I think the first category is really love of reading, vocabulary. So uh, let me throw it to Ryan. Yeah, I mean, the love of reading actually is paramount. It, it goes hand in hand with my exposure to comics because as a younger kid, I didn't like reading at all. I wasn't very good. I was a very slow reader. I kind of still am. Of all of my subjects in school, reading for all for a couple of years was my worst. I hated it. I hated reading. I hated writing. I just it wasn't fun. But I had this kind of love of stories. I could watch a movie or a TV show and remember it and remember salient details and recall it and describe it, transcribe it almost to my friends on the playground the next day and like recap all these things. So my teachers were like, he likes telling stories. Why does doesn't he like reading and writing? And it was just this kind of block. And then it was only when I started getting comics. And at first, for a long time, I was just looking at the art. I was just looking at pictures and following the story, sometimes making it up or making you know explanations. And these are late 80s, early 90s comics. So the art and the dialogue often were at odds with each other because we're talking about, you know, like the early image founders, you know, like that. So I was often making up stories that were not actually what was being told, conveyed through the dialogue. But then as time went on, I was like, you know, I would read a single word balloon at a time or, you know, something that kind of like constructed a little bit more of a narrative. And I did get into it. And then before long, I was enjoying the comics for the dialogue, for those word balloons. And I was reading all of those and I was getting more invested in the stories and the characters. And it wasn't just the art and the flashy pictorial elements of it. And then before long, that turned into me reading short stories and reading like shorter novellas. And then by the time I was in like eighth grade, I think it was probably up until then when I actually started reading books and reading novels on my own for enjoyment. But at first it was... I hated that stuff, but comics got me into the written word and got me to love language and conveying stories through that way. So, yeah, that's that's pretty much the thing that changed my life most sort of fundamentally in that level is just about how much I like literature and, and the arts in that way comes from comics. It's sort of mirrored in a couple of comments that we got on the Patreon mm -hmm. site. Both Mike Dynas and Max Traver expressed how much comics played a role for getting them to read. Like yeah. Mike says, it started with just looking at the cool pictures, but then the words started to click and everything had more meaning. Then I started learning all the $5 words like Excelsior, Hacienda, and Vibrational Frequency um, I would add <laughs> omnipotent in there. Uh, that made me enjoy language that much more. And because I enjoy comics so much, it led to reading more novels, magazines, short stories, serial boxes, etc. As for Max, being what was referred to as a hyperactive child at the time, comics were a form of reading and entertainment that managed to capture my ADHD infused attention and helped me to learn how to focus my attention on something more than one minute at a time. Now, I have a question for, for Max, because Max, you're bilingual. Yes. So I started, I, I mean, my story is that I was always a reader. Like mm -hmm. my first comics were uh, in French, obviously. Uh, at three, I was carrying around a Tintin, you know. But mm -hmm. learning the English language 
really came through comics. We learned it in school, but I think I was ahead of the class when they started doing it in third grade. I had already learned how to read English, if not speak it quite very well. You know, words like though and tough don't actually <laughs> translate right. phonetically. But for me, English was learned through Richie Rich and Archie comics. Did comics play a role for you in, in, in terms of language? It did, but not in terms of being bilingual. My... My parents, my dad actually insisted that I learn English first because he was a Spanish-speaking native. Spanish was his first language. Growing up at the time that he did made it very difficult for him. You know, he grew up in a time when if you spoke Spanish in class, you would basically get beat for that. It was discouraged. He had a lot of trouble. He had an accent growing up, which I actually never heard because my dad was in radio for a brief time. And part of that training is to do that kind of Midwest, everywhere but nowhere accent. So growing up, I never heard my dad's accent. He had, he had already trained himself out of it. I was, I guess, kind of a precocious reader. I, I've, I've been reading since I was four years old. You know, started out with, with smaller books and then books. And then, I, and then I got into comics. So I was actually reading before I got into comics. But one thing that really surprises me in retrospect, and we all talk about this in, in various ways, the vocabulary that you find in comics, you know, in some ways is better than some of the books meant for children at that age, but you know, like in grade school and that sort of thing. I'm looking at, uh, of course, uh, an issue of Human Fly right now, and you know, there's the word charlatan. Uh, there's the phrase cardinal rule of journalism. They paid Judas in silver. You know, all those things require you not only to have a vocabulary, but to have a broader range of cultural reference. And comics really is what brought that home for me. It made my writing ability, my speaking ability, my vocabulary, all that much better than any of the people in my class, especially my vocabulary. It was it was usually a, a few grades ahead of uh, my classmates. And I really do give credit for that to comics. But getting back to what you were asking, I do have friends, one particularly close friend, whose first language was Spanish. And they've told me that comics is what helped them learn English, along with, you know, TV and that sort of thing. But English is what helped them recognize words and be able to learn to read in English. Because a lot of, you know, if people aren't bilingual or you know, they don't speak another language, they don't understand that there is a difference between being able to speak something, being able to listen to something, and being able to read it and write it. Those friends of mine have told me that comics were essential in helping them learn how to read and write in English. The pictures provide context clues, so even if you don't have an adult to help you along with it, you know, it's, it's mm -hmm. you can kind of figure it out, yeah. yeah. Where do you stand, uh, Steve? What kind of child were you? <laughs> I, uh, I, I was a very introverted child, which should come as no shock to people who know me because I'm a very much an introverted adult. I want to speak a little bit first about uh, what Ryan and Max have said about how instrumental comics were to their development as readers, whereas Ryan, it helped him become a reader. And as Max, it seemed to enhance 
skills he was already coming into the genre with. You know, as a teacher, I it's very clear that boys, for instance, tend to be very visual learners and tend to be like uh, stimulated and engaged more visually. And so the idea of graphic novels and comics and whatnot, you know, there's a reason why boys tend to be attracted to that kind of literature because it sparks something that it tends to be in their wheelhouse to begin with in terms of, of engagement. And also, uh, you know, Max, you and I talked a little bit about this or almost extensively about this in the uh, human flycast episode we did mm-hmm. about the idea of children's literature, being able to up the ante a little bit in terms of like, um, giving the child something more than just a story to keep them distracted or to engage them. And and your thoughts about the vocabulary, they echo my own experience in that, you know, I was developing and encountering words that even if I didn't quite understand what they were at the time, they were being logged into my memory bank. So when I encountered them again, I had a context in which to put the word and like and be able to to assimilate it more into my um, into my own usage. Now, my experience is going to be a little bit more technical because I, I I'm coming from this as a as a reading teacher. But when I was in college studying to become an English teacher, I took a class on reading instruction. And the professor had the class complete a reading biography, which is uh, an examination of how we each became readers, like really doing a serious reflection on what our process was, using certain parameters and guidelines to really take an analytical look at how and why we became readers. Um, now, I went into the process knowing that comics would be a significant factor, but what I didn't realize when I began to apply these principles is how intricately comics are woven into the fabric of my reading life. I didn't realize that at the time. And my general love of literature as well, and also in my decision to become a teacher, all of those things were tied together because of the experience I had with comics growing up. Comics were, for me, the first reading material I remember selecting for myself when I was a child, rather than say like the picture books or something you might get as a gift or your parents would put into the supply of your, of your books that you have in your room or something. And I remember having comics before I was actually able to read them on my own. Like I remember not being able to read (laughs) and have a comic book in front of me. Uh, Instead, I would just look at the panels and make up the story from that. I, I like, as Ryan just said, he did the same thing or he did something similar. However, now this is how specific I got with this because of this assignment the teacher (laughs) gave us. It wasn't until I saw uh, Justice League of America 195 on the comic book rack at a local convenience store that I actually tried to engage with the words and understand the intended story. I'm sure you're familiar with the comic. It's a classic book, but it's the book where the secret society of supervillains are teaming up to take down members of the JLA and the JSA and there's this magnificent George Perez cover of the villains grouped up in front of the headshots of the heroes. Uh, and it's just seared into my brain. And what got me was that I noticed for the first time the idea or the concept of the cliffhanger ending. For me, at that time, looking through comics was just making up my own adventures. And this was the first time I realized, oh, there's a story going on here and something's going down and the heroes didn't win at the end on the last page. 
it ends with uh, Hawkman and Black Canary and Wonder Woman being captured, and it was obviously going to be continued. And I remember I just sat down at, on the floor of the convenience store right there in front of the rack, and I frantically went back through the comic trying to apply whatever feeble reading skills I had at the time to figure out what happened. Uh, and it marked the first time also that I sought out and got the follow-up to a story. I knew that there's a continuation, and every time I would go back to the convenience store after that, I would look for the follow-up. And in this case, I actually got the third and final part of the story. I didn't uh, get the middle part until several years later. But that's kind of what engaged me in the idea of there's a story here that I need to figure out and I need to follow. And, and that realization and the excitement I got from it set me down a path uh, to becoming an English teacher, of having a desire to explore literature and to be enriched by it, and also to help others be enriched by it. I mean, I didn't decide as a five-year-old that I was going to be a teacher at that point, but it was my experience with that JLA book that definitely planted the seed. Yeah, You mentioned college, yeah. uh, and I I'm thinking, well, you know, it's not just about the development of the child. You know, through comics, you can access other things that become of interest. I remember in my college years, it was like the almost vertigo kind of era of DC Comics. And uh, a book like Doom Patrol just sent me into, you know, looking at Dadaism and all sorts of things that eventually fueled elements of, of my own studies in English. But I wouldn't have been necessarily interested in those things or I wouldn't, wouldn't have raided the, the university library for those topics if not for encountering them at a still impressionable age. I, I'm, I'm thinking like 20 years old is still an impressionable age. I wonder, are, are there topics that you became interested in, not because of a movie, not because of a book, but because of comics? Like fishnets, Ryan? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll go with the fishnets, definitely. So. Sort of the same thing happened to me, Siskoid, is for a long time I had to leave comics just because of finances and availability. You know, there weren't a lot of comic book shops in, in the town that I grew up in, and the ones that there were were like just way too far for me to get to. And, you know, also I was broke. I was, you know, a teenage kid. I didn't have any money. But once I was in college and I was working and there was a really good comic book store right next to the university, of course. And as you were saying, that was the Vertigo era. My attitude and my interests had changed at that point. So Vertigo really hit that sweet spot. And, you know, I was reading Doom Patrol and I was reading Sandman. I was reading everything, really. It really set me on a path of wanting to find out more about all sorts of things you know, and about folklore and about uh, dream logic. And, you, you know, you mentioned Dadaism, which actually turns out to be my favorite uh, art movement, just because it's so ridiculous. <laughs> all those things. That's when I first understood that comics was a medium and not a genre. It was something that could do everything. You know, and I, when I, I've worked in comic book stores and when people come in saying, oh, you know, what do I look for? And, you know, what do you think I'd be interested in? I've never done this. Before. I always, I would always ask them, what movies do you like? Because there's, to me, in, you know, logically, there is an overlap. Comics can and have done everything. And that was something I figured out in college and something that really kind of opened up the world of comics to me. And that's when I started reading stuff like Peter Bagg and Paul Chadwick and, you know, the, the really kind of more indie stuff that wasn't getting a lot of attention 
but was talking about something deeper than, you know, people in tights punching each other, which I still love. <laughs> you know, that is not a that is not a diss on superhero comics at all. That is the, still the majority of what I read. But this is going to sound pretentious. The extra layer that I found within comics kind of reflected the extra layer that I guess I was trying to establish for myself as a young adult. That was something that really meant a lot to me at the time. I also think that comics helped in some cases recontextualize or just enhance fandoms that I already had. And I'm thinking about like for licensed comics in particular, like the very first comics I ever read that I was ever really exposed to were GI Joe comics. Right. And for years before that, I had been a long-term collector of, of GI Joe toys and I watched the cartoons and I loved the cartoons, but the cartoon was for kids and it was very silly. And despite the fact that it was full of people shooting guns at each other, it was nonviolent to that extent. Like there were no real consequences to that. The first G.I. Joe comics I read, the first three issues that I got as a bunch when I was sick, featured main characters getting killed and like like a battlefield with bodies lying on the ground. I was like, wow, this is a lot more – I don't want to say sophisticated necessarily, but the content was more mature. It was a little bit more adult, and by that time, because I was a few years older – it was mirroring the kind of play I was doing with my friends when we still collected G.I. Joes and we were still playing. When the Joes shot the Cobras, the Cobras died. There were consequences of it. And I was like, okay, the comic is more like what I want this property to be like as I'm growing older. It allowed me to maintain my love of G.I. Joe for a few years longer than I would have when I stopped caring about the cartoon. Uh, and it kind of took it in a different way. Also, something like in the 90s when Dark Horse got the license to, to print Star Wars. You know, I, I wasn't reading when, when Marvel had the license originally. So for me, growing up, Star Wars was just these three movies that I really liked, I loved, but that was it. It was finite. And all of a the sudden, there's this book called Dark Empire, and I'm flipping through it, and I was like, these are further adventures of Luke, Han, and Leia and these characters. And the story isn't over, and my love for Star Wars you know, continued to thrive through the additional comics. So that was something where it, it didn't lead me to a new love of something, but it was something that I, I – I, a fandom that I already loved that I thought was over, and now – you're given the chance through these tie-in comics to stay in that world a little bit longer, or that galaxy, I guess. And you sort of brushed past my next talking point, really, because one of the things that I find most interesting about genre fiction and comics, or, you know, do a lot of genre fiction, is the ethical element to them. We can't discount the role of family and religion and school and innate temperament in ethics building. But my morality plays were just as likely to come from comics and shows like Star Trek and eventually loom larger than those basic building blocks. And I still can't understand how people who claim to like superheroes or Star Trek or Doctor Who can behave so badly sometimes when they were presumably fed the same moral lessons. <laughs> Steve, is there an ethics building element to your experience with comics. Yeah, definitely. You know, comics definitely shaped my worldview. I grew up and still live in a very conservative rural area where if you're a boy who doesn't hunt, play sports, or if you show any inclination towards being introverted, 
like a love of reading or creativity, you know, where you are kind of on your own, uh, you're very much an outlier and you, your very manhood gets questioned. <laughs> so comics were a validation for me that there wasn't something wrong with me. They also steered me away from racist beliefs, which I grew up surrounded by and was um, expected to adhere to. I mean, it wasn't like I didn't have any family or members or friends who were like in the KKK or something extreme like that. But, you know, casual racism was definitely prevalent uh, around me. And comics were instrumental in me becoming aware of it, me becoming cognizant of it in myself and dealing with it. Kind of like it served as like counter-programming to a certain extent uh, because I was reading books where, uh, you know, the characters were directly speaking against racism, where there were things that uh, – where a different attitude was being shown in terms of equality and what that meant. It also, not to mention just expanding my sense of the world so that I at least understood that there were other kinds of cultures and people outside of my little rural community. I mean, when I was growing up, you know, it wasn't uncommon for people to have never left the county that we live in simply because they never had any reason to, you know, and I think most sociologists would say that, you know, one of the worst things that a person can do, one of the, one of the breeding grounds for things like racism and prejudice is staying within your own circle, staying within your own kind of territory and not experiencing or uh, encountering different cultures and different uh, uh, ways of living. Maya Angelou had a, a famous quote where she said, nothing, I can't, I'm going to get it wrong, but it was like, nothing cures racism like traveling. And for me, comics were that travel for me because I wasn't able to go to different places in the country or in the world. So comics opened up that door to me a little bit, not necessarily giving like an accurate perception of what other things were like. But like I said, just expanding my world so that I understood, oh, there is something more outside of Sussex County, Delaware. I can echo some of what Steve was saying, because my parents are fairly liberal, you know, and, you know, lifelong Democrats and that sort of thing. And I, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. As a child, I remember my parents voting for Carter, and you know that's you know that's sort of that's the family I come from. There was already uh, these kind of I don't want to say progressive, but more you know liberal attitudes. So comics for me not only enhanced but amplified those ideas. And I took as a child, I was very serious about everything. And I took that very seriously. I took it to heart when, you know, I was told you don't treat people any differently because of the color of their skin or because of their culture or anything like that. You don't litter. You don't do things that harm society, I guess. And comics really echoed that for me. Spider-Man and Superman, especially uh, growing up, were big heroes to me. And when people say, oh, Superman is is boring, I really don't understand that because for one thing, you know, he's punching planets and how is that boring? But also people say, oh, he's too perfect. But that ideal persona is not necessarily there. If, if you look at Superman, what is there is someone trying to be the best that he can. And that was something that I, I really took to heart. Even now, sometimes, you know, because it's easy. You get lazy, you get tired. You know, for a while there, I was pretty bitter. And you don't necessarily feel like helping people. It's something that I do, and this is going to sound really corny, I asked, I actually asked myself, what would Superman do in, the, in this situation? <laughs> and that actually gives me that little boost to say, okay, 
I have the power to help in this situation or I have the power to do something in this situation. Superman would do something. I should do something. It's funny because I have, you know, a Superman ball cap and I had a Superman t-shirt at one point. I noticed, and I don't know if you guys have ever ever experienced this. I noticed that when I walked around with that Superman t-shirt, people, especially kids, would look at you differently. You know, they kind of look at you like, oh, you know, because Superman means something. I really think those principles of Superman and even Clark Kent, because I became a journalist and I already knew about journalistic ethics because of reading about characters who were journalists and, you know, especially Lois Lane and the chasing on the story and all that, you know, all, the, all that was very exciting. And that's, I brought that excitement that to, uh, to journalism when, when I started Superman as, as especially, you know, all the characters, but Superman, especially, I think really, you know, encapsulates this is us at our best. I made a decision because of comics that I wanted to try to be at my best. I knew I'm not going to, I'm not going to be Superman, obviously, but I can try, I, you know, I can try to be a good person. I can try to do the right thing, not because it's easy or because I'm going to benefit from it somehow, but because it's what you're supposed to do. That has been a guiding principle in my life. And I don't know if that would have happened to the extent that it has if it wasn't for comics. I can see your interest in the human fly is similar. <laughs> yeah, it is. It really is. Yeah. Ryan, is it fishnets? <laughs> <laughs> I, I do think like the, the messaging that goes along with, in particular with superhero comics. And yes, it is fascinating to see how people who claim to love these characters can behave in ways that display a complete abandonment of the ethos of characters like Superman and, and Spider-Man and, and Captain America. But the lessons that you boil down in some of these things, like with great power comes great responsibility. I'm thinking of the movie adaptations now, not necessarily specific lines from the comics, but, you know, like in the first Iron Man movie, you know, Tony telling Pepper, I shouldn't be alive now unless it was for a reason. And I now know what I should do. And, and the whole thing about like being a good man is more important than being, you know, this great soldier and stuff. So I think these lessons are sort of universal and I, I think there's a real power with something that simple like hitting a child and that can have a profound impact on your your worldview and hopefully inform your decisions going better to be to try and live as close to that life as you can I co-sign what max was saying too well our friend herman has one of the more extreme examples of ethical adjustment. Uh, I'll read it in full because it's, it mirrors our experiences but amplifies them. The comics definitely initiated a massive change in my life, he says. I grew up in South Africa during the 1970s and early 80s when apartheid was still in full swing. While my mom and dad were not outwardly racist and supportive of the white government, they had been indoctrinated by their parents and peers and were definitely exhibiting some bigotry during my childhood. My aunts and uncles were even worse, not to mention my cousins and schoolmates. I went to an all-white Afrikaans school. And my grandparents actually rooted for Germany during World War II as they lived in the German colony of Namibia, where they were young. So while I was being brainwashed by their rhetoric and the school system, which advocated white supremacy as a divine right supported by the Dutch Reformed Church, some counter-indoctrination was taking place when I read the stuff that had slipped past the censors. Luke Cage, Hero for Hire and stuff like 2080's Strontium Dog were some of my favorite titles back then. Cage was a black hero to look up to, while Johnny Alpha, the strong dog, 
dealt with human bigots and racism. It was powerful stuff and made me question uh, what I was seeing around me and caused a lot of friction between me and my family, so much so that my mom almost banned me from reading what I liked. Eventually, my parents relented and allowed me to find my own path, and I know I chose the right one. While most of my family and classmates have not changed, some have become even more extreme, I'm just lucky I didn't fall into that miasma of hate they fostered miasma, great comic book word. I credit <laughs> comics as the sole reason for that initial prod that made me question what was happening around me and exposed me to a world beyond my own. So it's basically the same stories that we've been telling, but the apartheid angle makes it okay. Wow. That's yeah, amazing. Herman's a, he's a story topper. You know, we we come in with our little suggestions. He's like, oh yeah, he actually grew up in this regime. Yeah, okay, all right, all right. <laughs> for for super nerds like us, uh, let's admit that without comics, we probably wouldn't be into blogging or podcasting or <laughs> folks you could be listening to give me that world cup <laughs> <laughs> fire and water network could be all about sports politics you know hollywood trivia stuff like that yeah because i've always been a i think a content creator that's always been in me. But, you know, the first blog I ever found or the first blogs I ever read were comic book blogs, and that's what I wanted to emulate. And then even though my blog deals with other things, comics were a big part of it. The blogging led to the podcasting. The podcasting led us to this day. You know, yeah, I mean, I would be doing Asimov shows if, if it wasn't for uh, <laughs> comics. You know, anyone read Omni back in the day? Yeah. The Yeah, yeah. I mean, comics led me to a lot of different things i mean at, at one point in in college i considered majoring in you know that money making field of folklore and <laughs> that was but a lot of that came from what i was reading in comics you know at the time but also just with the idea that comics were kind of a modern folklore and by the time i was in college i was kind of getting this you know universe brain this galaxy brain of what comics were and what they could be thinking about it for this show i realized that comics have had more of an impact on some of my decisions my you know my major life decisions than i realized at the time let me read one from uh, russell burbage here it actually brings up developmental issues he says two comics specifically specifically changed my life it's a little bit like uh, steve's justice league book one was teen titans number 48 the issue from the mostly forgotten 1977 revival that announced a letter column art contest i took a chance and entered the contest with an illustration of the teen titans on a postage stamp well i won that contest i got an autograph script of teen titans number 51 from bob rosakis then in number 52 i got my name mentioned and i got my design redrawn by terry austin on the top of the Teen Titans letters page. How cool is that? Now, for those old-time Titans fan out there, you know that the series was canceled an issue later. My fame was short-lived, but at a tender age of 13, I'd tried something and had succeeded. So after that, even though most of my schoolmates thought I was an overweight, insecure nerd, I knew that I was good enough to win a nationwide contest. I never had the same insecurity that I had before. I started writing letters to comics and they started getting printed. I wrote to the writer of the Super Friends cartoon and he wrote back. I wrote Fred Hembeck and he wrote back. I became more outgoing because I was more sure of myself and that led to all sorts of things. Even today, when I look at my art and sometimes think it's not as good as it could be, I remember that Teen Titans contest and think, nah, I'm good enough. So comics is a confidence booster. That's awesome. <laughs> That's very cool, Russell. Yeah, that is awesome. So are there things that are more personal like that, like 
a life-changing experience. You know, maybe you bonded with a parent or a child or, a, you know, that could be part of it. Did it lead to love for any of you? <laughs> it led to my, my knowledge of comics led to my uh, first college hookup. Um, it lead to a, a deep relationship. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to go into details and, 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 and be making no, uh, by all means, you must. <laughs> kiss and tell. Kiss and tell. Yeah, uh, no, well, having some comic book knowledge, uh, like I said, was the catalyst for this. Uh, it was my freshman year, and I was living in a co-ed dorm. In this dorm, the names of the students living in each room were put on the doors of the rooms. And one of the girls' rooms had the following name on it, spelled... S-I-O-B-H-A-N. Now, if you were reading Superman comics in the late 80s and were familiar with the Silver Banshee, you would know that that name is pronounced Siobhan because back in the day, comic books used to have the pronunciation key. They would like star the name and then the name, the pronunciation would be like in a little box in the corner or something. It's a Gaelic name. Yeah. And this particular dorm, the door is opened to the outside uh, and this girl's room opened up to a grassy knoll area where people would hang out. And I was there one afternoon hanging out with some friends uh, when the girls came out of their room. And I don't know why I did this because this is completely out of character for me. But something in me just made me call out to them and said, hey, which one of you is Siobhan? They stopped and the girl who identified herself as Siobhan was this like stunningly cute brunette. I mean, she was like, you know, you go back to the like the trope of the pixie girl that comes up in movies and whatnot. She was that. I was somewhat struck dumb because I didn't know where to go from there. So I just said, um, you know, cool name. I love the Gaelic spelling and went back to talking with my friends. Well, I think that she had never had someone get her name right, like a complete stranger, because then she came up to me and asked me how I knew how her name was pronounced. And I, I was too chicken to bring up the fact that I got it out of the comics, but I, so I just said, I read it somewhere, <laughs> I kept comics out of the equation. But that prompted continued conversation and tentative uh, plans that we made to meet up later that evening. And one thing led to another, and we ended up spending a, a really wonderful time together. Cute. Yeah. And it wasn't like a relationship. Like It was just one of those. It was my first time experiencing a moment where you meet somebody and you have a connection and it's only for a brief period of time. Like this wasn't love. This wasn't, we just had that connection right away. And I can say that my knowledge of comics <laughs> prompted me to be able to have that in with her that I guess other guys didn't get right away. What about you, Ryan? I know you're raising your child in the comic book way. <laughs> Doing my best. Uh, it, you, there could be no prouder moment than when he recognizes Hulk as an infant. Um, I, I was going to say we haven't really like read comics together, although there are like all these sort of you know little golden books based on all of the Marvel and DC superheroes. So he has been exposed to a lot of these characters, and he's kind of getting the gist of them. He saw some preview or something on YouTube, which leads me to think I might start showing him Batman the animated series at some point in the near future. I've mentioned this, I've posted this a few times, and he's he's going through this phase. I hope it's kind of a phase where he's like really into the sort of of morbid Halloween like accoutrement stuff and he like really likes skeletons now. Um and that was you know fine, like whatever. But I actually I had a Doctor Strange book on my shelf of, of Doctor Strange like being surrounded by like these undead skeletons. 
And Reese was like, Dad, yeah, what is it? Like, pointed at it. Like, what is that? There's skellies, skellies. And I was like, oh, okay, do you want to see this? And I'm like, start flipping through this Doctor Strange comic with him fighting these zombified skeletons. <laughs> and my kid, four years old, is like fascinated by this. I'm like, all right, this is going to be an interesting childhood, but we're, we're hold on, I'm going for it. <laughs> Time to break out the house of mystery. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. But yeah, the only other thing kind of like going back that I, I was sort of thinking about when, um, when Max was telling a story a few minutes ago, I think it was um, the comic book writer Brad Meltzer, who for some people in our circle, he may not be the most beloved comic book creator, but he is a very, very extremely talented writer. Uh, and I like most of his work that he's, that he's done. And he tweeted something over the summer, I think, just like what does you know Superman mean to you? Because people are have been going up in arms about the perfect depiction of Superman, whether it's the movie version or the comic version, and like how aggressive should he be? Nobody really can has any consensus about this. So Brad just tweeted, you know, like what does Superman mean to you, or something like that. And the first image that I thought, you know, was just this this thing. So I just I tweeted a picture with no text. It was just a picture of my kid back when he was two years old wearing a Superman T-shirt, lying down in the grass, looking up at the sky with kind of this just this wonder and this awe. And Brad like tweeted back at it. He's like, that's the right answer. So I thought that was kind of cool. So, yeah, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, as as he grows up, uh, he, he definitely has the exposure with the superhero genre and these types of characters i'm definitely hoping that we will be reading some together and not just the same books but hopefully like exploring other genres and stuff that he finds interested certainly the horror genre now is seems like a big thing i can't wait for him to get into saga of the swamp thing Um, (laughs) it is a part of rearing my child that i'm actually looking forward to is somewhat vicariously living through what i hope i hope he will have a long love of comics and if he decides no he would rather you know watch basketball and listen to podcasts about that i can make that adjustment if i need to <laughs> they'll find their own way yeah. what about you max any stories growing up i was kind of a, a lonely kid I, I wasn't very good at making friends because in my neighborhood and i guess kind of in my culture at the time boys did boy things played sports and ran up and smacked girls in the head and you know <laughs> that's that sort of thing I was very shy and I was very um, introverted in a lot of ways. I was sensitive, uh, as they said in those days. It was kind of a lonely childhood. I did have friends, but not all. I wasn't popular and I didn't have a whole ton of friends and, and that kind of came and went. But again, when I was in college and comics uh, were, I'm going to you know use the, the E word, I, it, was, it was escapism for me. Something that gave me pleasure that I couldn't, I didn't need other people around me to, in order to enjoy it. I was in college. I was going to school. I was also working as a clerk at the newspaper at that time. So I was making money. And all of a sudden, I had these friends who were just as nerdy as I was. And we would go to that comic book store that I mentioned. And we would go and we would spend you know, all our money on you know, just any comic that caught our interest. We were young and we didn't have all responsibilities. We had more money than we knew what to do with. That was the first time I really understood that there was a comic book community that there was a fan community and that there were people I could speak to about these things and have, you know, these silly arguments about, you know, who's stronger, Hulk or Superman and, you know, that sort of thing. And I could do that all night over a cup of coffee at, you know, (laughs) one of these 24-hour breakfast places. I'm still friends with, with those people. And that helped me 
kind of come out of my shell. It helped me have confidence in my opinion about things. It was something that I could bond with other people over. I could argue with people and not worry about losing friends. In a way, this escapism allowed me to have real relationships with people, probably for the first time, you know, in my life, you know, real solid, deep relationships. I treasure that. And there are comics that make me think of that era of that time. And they're special to me because of that bridge that it built for me. The most unusual story. This is one last story we're going to tell in the positives. Gene Hendricks story, probably the most unusual story in the lot. Because he says, how did comics change my life? Pretty remarkably, as a matter of fact. You see, there was a little comic that I loved to read called The Mighty Thor. And it was being written and drawn by Walt Simonson at the time. A lot of time was spent on Asgard uh, or dealing with Norse threats on Midgard, which is more than just Earth, but I digress. Fast forward a bit to my first experience with Dungeons and Dragons and the reference book Legends and Lore. One of the sections was on the Norse gods, but the Thor in there had red hair. I had to know more. So I started doing research and learning quite a bit about the Edas and the Norse people in general. Fast forward again to 2008. I've been married for nearly six years and I have a child on the way. I have also left the religion that I was raised in, Catholicism, about 20 years before. Having tried out various things, including atheism, I knew that I believed that there was something more beyond this world, but I didn't know what. I stumbled across the works of a gentleman by the name of Bill Lindsay, who wrote extensively on the Norse worldview and how it was a revived religion and had been since the early 70s. Suddenly, my worldview clicked into place. This is what I was looking for. This made sense to me. Not only that, I found that one of my friends from our Star Trek club was a worshiper. So how did comics change my life? It ultimately led me to heathenry and becoming the Asgardian advisor to many a comic book podcast. Wow. So that it, it changes religion, uh, you know, eventually. I mean, <laughs> I don't know if I've ever heard the word heathenry before. So that's another that's pretty good. vocabulary that we can attribute to a love of comics. Yeah. I would have thought paganism, but I guess it's different. I mean, I get it. Catholicism. It's like one of the hard ones to keep latched onto for a certain generation. I don't know. An Irishman, a French Canadian, and a Latino walk into a church. It's probably a Catholic church. I'm not, <laughs> uh, I imagine. But um, yeah, uh, it's a very interesting story. And I, I know that Gene has talked about this on other uh, in other venues before. Well, I've had that uh, similar experience, um, not in changing the religion, but in having uh, comics, you know, the sci-fi fantasy in general, informing my own religious and spiritual beliefs. I mean, right now I'm, uh, I attend a regular Bible study meeting with some friends of this network. We call ourselves the nerds of prayer. And when we get together, we're discussing scripture, but it's within the frame of the nerdy knowledge that we're coming to the table with. So the idea of like using one to frame the other, you know, is um, I think is not an unusual experience. So I was glad that he shared that story. Thank you, Gene. We'll take a short break at this point. We're going to talk about the negatives when we come back from the promo break. Hold on. Welcome one and all to the Fire and Water Racetrack and Arena. Please direct your attention to the center of the track where you will see 36 buses lined up between two ramps, a tank full of live man-eating sharks and a high wire stretching over it all. The rocket cycle is warmed up and all the nets have been removed. Who would attempt these stunts just to entertain and inspire his audience? What kind of man? What kind of hero? 
There, coming in on a rocket-powered skateboard, it's the death-defying human flycast! Join me, Max Romero, and a rotating roster of guests as we dive headfirst into the colorful comics of Marvel's The Human Fly. The Death-Defying Human Flycast is a limited episode podcast spotlighting the adventures of a man who comes back from a crippling auto accident to become a mysteriously masked stuntman with a mission to inspire others to never give up hope. We'll also talk about the real-life human fly. Because he was real, it's gonna be wild. Afternoon, everybody. Ryan! How's that baby treating you, Mr. Daly? Like Thanos, snapping his fingers at my bank account. In that case, how about a beer on the house? Sure, gotta give my mouth something to do between podcasts. Say, Ryan, I don't get how you have so much time for podcasting. Doesn't your wife want you spending time with the baby? Would you? (laughs) Truth is, I think she's a little worried about how much time I'm spending with the kid, ever since his first words were Dagobah system. (laughs) Now she wants me to go out and do something mature, something productive, and... Most of all, something lucrative that can support the family. So you're going to... Podcast about Cheers, yeah. (laughs) That kid's not going to start college for 18 years. I got time. (laughs) Cheerscast, the podcast where everybody knows your name. Coming soon to the Fire & Water Network. So we're back, and of course, there's a dark side to anything you embrace passionately. Uh, We wouldn't be giving a full picture if we didn't at least explore the negatives. I'll throw something out there. Collecting as addiction, you know, uh, whether it affects your money, uh, whether it affects your real-world relationships. You know, in the 90s, I was having trouble myself buying my weekly stash, uh, a bit like what Max was saying. It was at least $40 a month, probably around 80 sometimes. So it it helped destroy a serious relationship uh, because I was spending money that could have gone into the common pot, uh, sort of doing it on the sly. And when I quit, I quit cold turkey, and then I couldn't walk into a comic book store. And if I did, I, I couldn't let my eyes focus on the comic book rack I felt ill. So the addiction is real in my case. Are there times where, for you guys, it kind of spun out of control? Oh, yeah. I offered sexual favors for comics. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Never got that bad, but yes, certainly I know the addiction feel and like how much money you're spending and what you could be spending that on instead. Yeah, that's that's a struggle. <laughs> Steve? <laughs> I have a history of money issues, uh, not just related to comics, but um, that definitely has been a factor and something that I've had to uh, address. I, I wouldn't say that I was addicted. I mean, I was always an avid reader, but it was um, – I get that that being a factor in you know in your monthly spending and what you need to make decisions on, especially as you are – becoming an adult and have real like responsibilities uh, to see to on a monthly basis. Max, you said you had to quit mm-hmm. at some point or my options for buying comics were very uh, short. It was basically, you know, the, the local convenience stores that I could bike to. I, I could almost never find comics in sequence. It was always just kind of random issues, tough times for my family. And I was too young to get a job, even though I tried and <laughs> I tried to get jobs and everyone would tell me, you know, we're not going to hire a, you know, a 14 year old. Yeah. So there was a period there where I could not buy comics once I could buy comics again. And once, you know, I had my own money 
and that sort of thing. It was funny. I want to call it an addiction. Well, I don't know. Uh, but it was definitely habit. And I didn't realize how bad that habit was until I had to move. And suddenly I'm lugging all these <laughs> long boxes everywhere, <laughs> which cures you of that real quick. <laughs> and I kind of realized, you know, what are all these comics? And I had to go through because the problem for me is I lean toward being a completist, which is not a great thing, especially when something for something that comes out every month. So I was buying things just kind of because I was always buying those things. Right. And I had to go through all those long boxes and I got rid of a lot of stuff because I realized I had them, but I wasn't reading them. And that was a big realization for me in general, you know, because I, I do the same thing with uh, especially like vintage paperbacks and that sort of thing. I, I, I'd like to get the set or I like to get everything from that edition or something like that. And I had to stop and tell myself, wait a minute, why am I doing that? That started with comics. You know, I wanted to get everything. And then, oh, you know, still, I I feel that pull toward uh, back issues because there's always back issues that I'm looking for. And sometimes I have to stop myself because that is a real hard habit to break. This is the show where I, I find out that Max and I are basically the same person. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I did, like, throw off the that weight eventually. You know, like, in the late 90s, mm -hmm. I quit, and then I came back to it, but just with trade paperbacks, that kind of thing. Like, okay, let's not get back into the floppies. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, three things saved me from that storage issue. One, having a classroom and as an English teacher, it is perfectly acceptable for me to have all kinds of literature all over my room. So that's inevitably where, like any graphic novels I buy, end up going. I also have a storage unit, which I have for other things, not just comics. But I'm just like, let me, you know, spend this little bit of money a month for this storage unit. And I can keep stuff there until I can figure out what to do with it. And like Max, I've gotten rid of a lot of stuff over the years. And also, we haven't really talked about this yet, but I've, this may be like anathema to some people, but I, I have embraced the digital comics sure. in a big way. Mm -hmm. uh, and that mm. has saved a lot of space. And because it allows me to do the reread, the ones I want to reread without having to dig through the boxes, <laughs> you <Yep>. know, <laughs> that's been like a real, like a, a real boon to my reading of comics. I've been able to read things I normally wouldn't have been able to read as a result. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, th this a big part of how I, a deal with comics today is that because I'm not adding any more long boxes. I don't mind the shelving issues, you know, with trades or graphic novels per se, but I'm not getting any more long boxes. Like right now they are mm -hmm. along the walls and they create a stepladder for the cat to go up and look out the window. <laughs> that's, it's in a couple rooms. And uh, that, that's how the cat gets to the window. Yeah. That is brilliant. I've got to think about that now with my stuff that's in storage because uh, my two cats need something to climb up on. I mean, I hadn't thought about that. So thank you for that idea. I mean, it works if you've got like a white wall and the white boxes and it doesn't yeah. look too bad, <laughs> but it's still, I, I'm sure somebody that doesn't know me walks into the house and they go, have you just moved? <laughs> There's boxes everywhere. <laughs> you know, one thing that helped me with that was libraries. Once comics started becoming more available in, you know, in the public library, I was able to read things without actually having to buy them. And if I liked it enough, I would go and I would buy it myself because I wanted to have it on the shelf. 
but libraries actually took that edge off for me. Uh, that's how I actually really started because I, that's my religion story <laughs> in a way. Because <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I started getting as gifts as a child, as a five-year-old, six-year-old. You don't have your own money, so you get gifts. Uh, so every Christmas and a birthday, whatever, I would get a few more of these uh, French titles. You know, Tintin, Asterix, that kind of stuff. Then growing up. I would always accompany my grandmother to church every Sunday, and then we'd go to the Woolworth, and she'd get me one. As a this grandmother was always like lavishing attention on whoever was the boy of a a certain age. After I grew, I was too old. It became somebody else's turn. You know, she liked little boys, so that's how I built up my collection at the time. Going to church for. For comics, I guess. But yeah, so the the library became that other venue that was on the way to my grandmother's house. So I basically read every title they had at least twice, you know, back in the day, because French comics were just more accessible generally. It's not like buying on a rack or whatever and trade paperbacks didn't exist back then, really. So, you know, those albums just existed and everybody had some in their house, whether they were a comic book fan or not later on in life. What about bullying? I mean, that would be like a negative point. We've got people in our network who often talk about uh, not wanting to talk about comics, you know, in public or at, at work because it's still in some quarters considered nerdy or... I'm going to say I don't think that comics led me to be bullied. I think I was on that path no matter what. <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh, but I know exactly what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, it wasn't a life changer. It was just yeah. another symptom of the thing that made me ostracized by the general school public. <laughs> but uh, but for some, it's, it's something, and I, I feel it when I talk to some people, that it was a trauma. That they don't want to talk about comics or role-playing games or whatever nerdy thing that they're into. It's opened up recently, you know, in the last 20 years. Uh, it's, it's kind of a geek culture now. But if you grew up in the 70s and 80s, even 90s, it wasn't the case. So some people are still still don't want to talk about those things in public. What I find is that when you talk about those things in public, suddenly everybody's going, oh, me too, me too, me too. And you're like, I would not have pegged you as a role player, as a comic book reader, as a Star Trek fan or whatever. But just the fact that you opened up about it, everybody's chiming in. Everybody's got like this, they're all treating it like a skeleton in their closet. I don't know if that's your experience. I was never bullied in school over that. I mean, I I experienced some bullying, but I was also, I'm a big guy and I was also a bit of a fighter. I've never started fights, but I certainly knew how to finish them. And I I don't say that because I'm like some like Chuck Norris badass or something like that. But I, I, if it came to that, I was, I was able to do it. And people at school didn't see me as like some like crazy vigilante or something like that. But I, I got the reputation, like don't mess with Givens because he will fight back, you know? I, I'm not a proponent of violence. I don't I don't adhere to it. But sometimes, you know, and I think you guys can understand what I'm talking about. You know, you got somebody who is just coming at you constantly. Sometimes you got to plant your feet and come at them with a good right hook, you know, just to stop it. Now, I, I, that sometimes is a, the part of the experience of growing up. I did have an issue specifically with comics and superhero related stuff when I was um Growing up, I have an older sister and I I can say this story because she and I have talked about this and we have gotten beyond it and we have a really good relationship now, but we were 
both going through the divorce of our parents. I was eight years old and my sister was about 11. And my sister took her anger out on me, her anger and frustration about the divorce between our parents and how that was being handled kind of messily with them. And one of the things she would come after me about was comics and she would ridicule me. Uh, she would harass me about it. She would like say, you know, things and boys your age don't read comics. Why are you doing this? You know, it's embarrassing, yada, yada. It became something where at home it was weird because I could go to school and read a comic book and not feel ostracized at home. I had to kind of read them in secret because I knew that if my sister saw me reading one, she would start in on me. Like I said, over the years, we've kind of moved through that and, um, you know, but it happened and, and it was a, a trauma, you know, and it's something that I, that we had to deal with and talk about and find a way to make, have a healthy relationship with each other. And, and thankfully we do now, thankfully I can look back on that and say, you know, that was a moment that was happening because of what we were both the collective trauma we were both experiencing because of our parents being divorced, getting divorced. And, and I can see wh where she was coming from. It doesn't make it any less hurtful or make it any less um, of a thing that I had to deal with, but it helped me deal with it. The idea of like, you know, being able to talk about it and to, you know, she and I were able to work through this and actually at, at one point we're in therapy together in our, our early adulthoods. And so that was really the only negative memory I have associated growing up reading comics. Now, today, like I think we've just said, it's it's almost the exact opposite where this nerd culture is very mainstream. It has allowed me, because I've got like so much comic book paraphernalia all over my classroom, I've been able to connect with students in ways that I hadn't been able to in, at the beginning of my teaching career as the uh, comic book movies and nerd culture became more and more popular and more and more prevalent in the mainstream. I mean, I went to the Baltimore Comic Con last month and, you know, I, I mentioned that I, would, I took a day off from work to like a Friday before the weekend to go and I was telling the kids I was going to be out because I'm going to the Comic Con. Well, that just sparked a great deal of genuine interest from the students. Like, oh, what was it like? I always wanted to go there, blah, blah. You know, like it has created an avenue for me to have that connection with. And I, I don't, I've not seen this directly, but I just know how very important that is for a kid growing up to have an adult who can show them that what they're interested in is valid, is important, has value. You know, it isn't something that they need to be ashamed of. And, you know, looking back at my experience, you know, I try to open up that acceptance for students who may be experiencing that at home the way I was. And so that, again, you know, this is this idea of my experience with comics has informed my approach to teaching, my approach to uh, being an adult. And even when there's, you know, bullying in the, like in school or in a, you know, in a social context, mm -hmm. that leads you to find people that are like you. And I think that many, uh, it's a little bit what Max was saying earlier, you find friends, people that are like-minded because you're a little bit under pressure to find your own group because you are made to feel different 
well, I'm different from this lot, but maybe I'm similar to this other lot. Yeah, and I think that's absolutely true. I was not bullied as a kid for comics, kind of because what you were saying, Cisco, I was bullied for many other things. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I played I played trombone in junior high, for God's sake. Um, oh, my gosh. So, yeah, yeah, I know. You, you might as well put a target on your back. <laughs> it was dark times. It was dark, dark times. But I also knew... I guess, like instinctively to keep it to myself, <laughs> um, it wasn't something that I was parading around and saying, hey, everybody, you know, look at this comic I just bought. It was very much something for me that I kept to myself because there was that fear that, that I would be bullied on top of whatever else I was being bullied for at the time. I was never bullied, but that was because, you know, I kept it very hush hush, which was kind of, you know, people would come over to the house and then they would see my, my budding collection, I guess. And I never had a negative reaction from everybody, anybody, everyone would kind of go like, Oh, you know, those are cool. And they would look through them and either they were interested or they weren't, you know, we had Superman in 78 and Batman in 89 and, you know, Star Wars, things that would be considered nerdy in general, but that were such phenomenons that everyone liked them. And I think in a way that kind of helped me in terms of being able to talk about these things with people as long as I wasn't being too nerdy about it. Yeah, I, I kind of got lucky in that way because I would have loved to have played D&D as a kid, but I can never find anyone to play D&D with. So it was really kind of just a matter of the demographics of the neighborhood that I grew up in. And uh, Mr. Popular... Ryan Daly, <laughs> you haven't spoken in a while, so maybe this is a chance to tell not a bullying story, but a story where you got hurt by comics. Yeah, I was because I, I was trying to. I was like, okay, when is it appropriate to make a joke that I was the bully who targeted the shops because they didn't read comics, and I would find the rich kids, and if they weren't reading X Men, I would take their money and flush their heads in the toilet. <laughs> um, no, I, but getting to the story, and I have two stories that uh, I'll try and make them short, and I don't want to be too glib about them. But when I first heard the subject of this podcast, is times that comic books change your life. These were the first things that occurred to me. They're both occasions where going to the comic store led to a near brush with death. Somewhat exaggerating, but not. One was I was uh, maybe a freshman in high school, and I was riding my bicycle down First Street to the store Fantasy Comics, got my collection after school, and then I was leaving. I was coming out, and the way the store was situated, it was right next to a blind alley. And on the other side of this city block, there were bars and stuff like that. And there was a delivery truck, a beer delivery truck had been like dropping stuff off for one of the bars. I being 15 or something, I guess I should not have been riding my bike on the sidewalk, but I was anyway. And I'm racing down there to try and get home in time. The delivery truck pulls out of the alley and it has to pull out so far because in order to see what's on the street it didn't see me coming, and luckily I was, like, if I had been a second earlier, I just would have been flattened by this truck. But luckily I was late enough that I, it pulled out in front of me, but I also couldn't stop. So I rode my bike straight into the side of this truck. And the collision wasn't so loud or impactful that the truck driver knew that a kid had just hit him on his bike. Because <laughs> oh I gosh. slammed into the truck and then kind of fell backwards next to the front right wheel. And then the truck proceeded to pull out and it ran over my bike. And that's what tipped the driver off. And something had gone wrong that he just hit something. And then just, I think, missed my leg by like an inch. 
um, oh, wow. just did not drive over me. That was a, a an expensive issue of Youngblood. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I would never collect a Rob Liefeld book. <laughs> I, I say it now. There probably was some image books in there. but No, I ended up with getting a bruise on my forehead and a scratch on my leg. Nothing more worse than that. I was shook up and there was like witnesses and the driver freaked out because he thought he ran over a kid. And he did come out and like I, I did sit in the back of an ambulance, although I didn't have to be taken away because there was no other damage. But it did destroy my bike. And the driver was freaked out. He was apologetic. I was like, and they were kind of like, well, it wasn't really your fault. The kid shouldn't have ridden his bike into you. They yeah, they didn't come to my rescue. But um, that was the last time I ever rode a bicycle because oh. I didn't fix. Oh, wow. um, and then within a few months, I think I was old enough to get my driver's license. So I think that was the last time I ever rode a bike. Wow. Um, so that, that changed my life. Yeah, you know people still ride bikes even after they get their license, right? <laughs> <laughs> do, do you do you you don't even have a driver's license do you Sisko? and neither can i drive a bike so i've got a problem with vehicles in general <laughs> well the second time i was actually driving this was on valentine's day 2008 i was working and this was my hometown of dekalb illinois where i grew up DeKalb, Illinois, if you're not familiar, is the home of Northern Illinois University. At one point when I was much younger, there were like three or four different places that I could get comics, including Fantasy Comics, the store uh, on First Street where I got hit by the truck or the truck got hit by me, depending on your perspective, on your, on who you believe. But at this point in 2008, there was really only one designated comic store and it was at the NIU campus. And after work, around three o'clock in the afternoon, I was going there and I was trying because it was Valentine's Day. I was engaged to Angela, who had become my wife. We had Valentine's plans, um, but I wanted to get to the comic store first. So I'm driving over there, and I'm heading down in the middle of campus, and I hit one particular intersection, and just as the light turns green and I'm going to go through it, a police car with its sirens on, the lights whirring, pulls right in front of me, like cuts me off. Like I had to like literally like, slam on the brakes, like screeching or I'm going to hit in this police car, and he stops me. And the cop stops in the middle of the road, gets out of this car, and basically just starts waving. He's like, you can't go through here. You can't be on the street. I'm like, are you kidding? Like, I can see the complex, the unit where the comic book store is. It's like a couple hundred feet away. I was like, can I just just let me drive there? I got to get my comics, man. And the cop was like, no, <laughs> turn around and drive that way. And I was like, oh, screw you. So I'm like, you know, whatever, mad. I, I turn right and I go down this other street. And I was like, okay, I'll go around this block. I can hit the comic store from this other direction. So I kind of cut through some side streets and I drive down. And then as I'm getting to the place I need to go, another police car stops in front of that intersections and cordons it off. And I was like, what the heck is going on? Like, what, what is it? So I start to drive around another part. I have to go further outside my way to circle around and get to the store from the other direction. And as I do, I'm hearing a lot more police sirens. And then I'm seeing ambulances and I'm seeing cop cars from other towns kind of all kind of converging on the center of the NIU campus. I'm like, well, this is kind of annoying. I don't know what's going on, what, like why there are so many cops there, but they're really ruining my plans to get, get to my comics. I'm like, is anybody having a worse day than me right now? <laughs> Eventually, like the whole thing is blocked off, and now, like, I can hear news helicopters over me. Like, and I'm like pulling over to the side, and I'm like, okay, something is up. 
And at this point, I'm like, I have a sinking suspicion that somebody did have a worse day than me. I get like the, the whole campus is shut down. I was like, even if I could walk to that store, it's not going to be open anymore. People are like locking doors and everything. Like there's this whole thing. So I'm like, all right, I'm getting out of here. So I drive home and find out that there was, in fact, a campus shooting. This was oh, no. February 14th, 2008. There was a shooting in Cole Hall, a building that I've never actually been in this lecture hall, but I've been in that building. NIU is not my alma mater. I had classes there, but I didn't graduate from there. But this was my hometown. This was in my backyard. And there was a shooting. A guy walked in with a shotgun and like three pistols, killed five other students. You like shot 20 of them. There were a lot of survivors. And then he eventually he shot himself before the police could, could take him into custody. And this was a big thing for like two weeks. It was on like I, I went home, I turned on CNN and I hear Wolf Blitzer talking about my hometown, which is kind of weird. And I'm seeing like the, the police sirens and everything. So that kind of like just like shook me. And I was like, like, I, I, I was never in any kind of danger. I realized that. Like, I mean, like I wasn't really close to that building. But had I been one second earlier, I would have been on the campus and locked in by the police presence. Like I wouldn't have been able to get out. I would have been locked in with comics, so there's that. <laughs> um, but so it was just kind of like this weird thing where I was like, wow, okay. These are these weird kind of stories that I thought about these two occasions where trying to get to a comic book store led to me almost dying. And that was, as, you know, Steve mentioned a little while ago about embracing digital comics for the sake of storage. This is when I decided to embrace digital comics when I started getting <laughs> comicsology and, and Marvel Digital Unlimited. It wasn't because of the storage thing. It was because... I don't want to go to a comic store if I don't have to, because the third time might be really unlucky for me. Um, <laughs> like you were pressing your luck or something. Yeah, yeah. I've, I'm getting a sign now. Let's let's just keep the comics on my iPad if I can. It's a lot more dramatic than the story I was going to tell. <laughs> I don't even know if it's necessarily a negative, but I believe comics led to a final estrangement with my father. Oh, <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Well, as listeners may already know, uh, he lived in Texas through my teen years, and it had always been a difficult relationship. And since starting college, I hadn't got back there. Uh, usually it was summers, and you know, once you're out of the house, you don't need to follow those rules. But I was graduating that year, and I had a comics project with local contemporary artists. An art house comic, you could say. And I was looking at different avenues of financing in terms of self-publishing. I was very, very inspired by the text pieces at the back of Cerebus that were running at the time. And sort of made it, okay, now it's possible to self-publish and I could be, you know, writing comics. You know, I gave it my best shot. And I mentioned it to him uh, on a call. And these were rare. You sort of had to initiate them yourself. This is what I mean by difficult relationship. And I'm, I'm not even sure I was asking for money, even though my dad fancied himself a high roller. But he hinted at the possibility. Rather than let me send him the materials, he invited all the kids and our significant others to Texas for Christmas. All expenses paid so that I could pitch the idea in person. That sounds like a good deal, but it was a boondoggle, a comic book word, an excuse for him to try to get us all into some pyramid scheme so that he, uh, that, you know, on the basis that we could finance whatever project we wanted to, to start. So he barely listened to when I pitched my project. And uh, within a few months, he'd forged my signature on the pyramid scheme papers to boost his numbers. And we ended up never speaking again. So you tell me if it's a negative. Wow. 
This is good. I'm, I'm really <laughs> sorry to hear that story. I, I mean, I'm, but you know, I'm also the proponent of when you have toxic people in your life, regardless of whether or not they are biologically related to you, you know, it's the healthier thing to do is to cut them out of your life. From what you just said, it sounds like that's exactly what you needed to do. So it's an unfortunate thing, but it's also, I would, I mean, if you're asking if it's a positive or a negative, I'd say it's a positive, you know, that you were able to make that choice, the healthy choice for yourself. I always find that it's easy for me to say that because there, because of the distance, because there's 4,000 miles sure. and the other person isn't making an effort. And I realize that some people, you know, have to see their, those family members or those toxic people in their environment all the time. Even though I'm just like you, my first advice is always cut the cord <laughs> on that on that yeah, stuff. Yeah. But it is because of a comics project that sort of exposed, you know, how bad the relationship had gotten. So it's kind of become a joke, my daddy issues. They're not daddy issues because I'm clearly very much over it, but we laugh about it a lot. Any other stories that we haven't put out there yet before we end things? I did want to say something uh, about Ryan's story about getting uh, running into the truck. When you mentioned the back alley, I was like, is Ryan about to tell us how he became Batman? Is that what, what's going to happen here? <laughs> Much more of an 80s kid movie scenario, I think. <laughs> I have a positive story to end on. When I was a kid, especially in junior high, I started not doing so well in school. I was, <laughs> you know, I was one of those kids that they always call, you know, that they would say was smart, but not focused. I could do the work. I just was choosing not to for whatever reasons. And I was, you know, so I was bringing home report cards that were not great. And I had been given an ultimatum by my parents that I had to pass everything this time where there were going to be consequences. And so, of course, I get my report card and I did not pass everything. And I knew I was going to be in trouble. I was going to, <laughs> this was not going to be good. So I took the longest route home that I could just to try and put it off. And this path led me past the closest convenience store to my house. I said, well, I'm going to go and I'm going to buy some candy or something. And on the shelf, I saw Detective Comics number 526, which is Batman's 500th appearance in Detective Comics. This is the one oh. written by Jerry Conway and uh, with art by Don Newton. And he basically fights every villain who, uh, of note who ever passed through Detective Comics. And, and it has this really striking cover of, you know, Batman and Robin and Batgirl kind of running at the reader. And there's these silhouettes of, of all the villains which was, a, for me, an introduction to a lot of these villains for the first time. I had just enough money to buy this comic, which was selling for, I think, $1.50, which for me at the time, I was like, I, there's no way I'm going to spend $1.50 on a comic. And that, But to make myself feel better, I said, okay, I'm going to buy this comic so that when I'm in trouble later, I can read this, <laughs> I can read this and make myself feel better. So I get home, and of course, I get into massive trouble. And I go to my room and I read this comic. And in spite of the crappy day that I was having, self-inflicted, I'll, I'll admit that, that comic really did make me feel better. And it is still one of my favorite issues of Batman. There, there are negative things to do with comics, but for the most part, luckily in my life, it's been heavily weighted toward the positive. It's a nice refuge. And I think that's a nice story to end things on, you know, end on the positive, a nice note. And I think one that's universal. 
to comic book readers. This is the end. Let's pimp our projects, if, if we have any. Steve, uh, are you working on anything that people can have access to? Oh, no, not really. Uh, unless you're interested in reading some of the essays I have to grade. Um, <laughs> and I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. I do have a blog. It's a givens at uh, Blogspot. I haven't kept up with I can't. It's really hard for me to do stuff like that during the school year. But um, if you're interested to go see some of the past movie reviews or the some of the uh, poetry and stuff that I've written, by all means, go have at it. But I'm uh, I'm always all over uh, the fire and water uh, uh, web page, you know, posting comments here and there on different shows that I'm watching or listening to and lurking around. And you were recently on a human fly cast, so people can check that out as well. Yeah, please do. And also uh, the, mo- the most recent show I did I- was a, uh, a Pod Dylan. Uh, Rob had me come on and talk about I'm, I'm not a Bob Dylan fan whatsoever. I mean, I, I mean, I don't dislike Bob Dylan, but I'm like, when he asked me, I was like, I don't know anything about Bob Dylan. Like, Why do you want me on the show? But uh, went and did it and it was fun. I'm always having a great time. Whenever I get a chance to be on one of these shows and talk with you guys, it's just a great time for me. I'm just like you about Bob Dylan. And yet I am on episode number one. So (laughs) (laughs) Rob will get anyone, anyone at all. Uh, As for Ryan and Max, they're both on this very same network that you're listening to right now. But maybe uh, they can give us a hint of what's coming up on their schedule. Ryan? Right now I'm only working on Cheers cast, the index show covering my favorite TV sitcom of all time, Cheers. Coming very close to finishing up season four. So that'll be fun. That'll wrap up pretty much with the end of this calendar year too and then i'll take a short little hiatus before getting back into season five and then later i guess i I gotta start reading tomb of dracula with my son soon i guess apparently (laughs) (laughs) and what about you max my most active podcast right now is the death defying human flycast and the next episode i'm not sure when this is going to be coming out but the very next episode will actually be uh, listener mail our first uh, letter bag episode So that should be interesting. And there's a couple of other podcasts that I do on the network, one about Plastic Man, one about literature, that are like Cthulhu, sleeping but not dead. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. So on that note, we have to mention that the Fire & Water Podcast Network has a Patreon page. So if you like our content, please think about making a one-time or monthly donation, the amount of which will allow you to unlock rewards like suggesting programming like this one. So again, our thanks to Steve Givens for suggesting it and to Ryan and Max and everyone who told their story for participating. So a reminder that you can leave comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com. You can also follow Fire and Water's Facebook page on Twitter. The account is FW Podcasts. So let us know how comics changed your life. Ta-da-da, 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 ta-da-da. <laughs>